Welkomen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Gypsy. How are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. Benny, this is your final episode with us. We have scheduled for next week a session where you and Patty will once again be working together, but then after that, the transition will be complete and Patty will be resting in her throne and you will be gone forever, gone forever. You shall vanish into the universal ether and will never hear from you or see you again. I hope that is not the case. I hope that I am wrong when I say that because I will miss you and I do want to hear from you and I do want to see you again. But we really can't say goodbye. Yes, this is your final episode on your own. But again, you're going to be in the booth with Patty next week. And we'll have a big party. We'll have we'll have a single submarine sandwich sitting on a lonely table. Just like Kurt Cameron's birthday. And that I can promise to you, Benny. <laughs> Benny, for this opening segment, I want to address a question that was sent to me by a listener and a longtime podcast partner of mine... Brandon Shockney. Brandon asked me, what video games should be turned into musicals? This was based on our coverage of the Final Fantasy stage musical. We discussed it just last week, but you remember, Benny. So Brandon was interested in discovering some other games that could be turned into musicals, and my initial response on Twitter, uh, my response is, I should say, were as follows. I think the RPG Disco Elysium should be turned into a video game. I, I, I should say, I think that video game should be turned into a musical. This segment is going very, very well. I think Night in the Woods would make a fantastic, stylized, spooky, strange show. Life is Strange, I think, is a great candidate. And then I wrapped up my Twitter response with Untitled Goose Game. I think that would be hilarious. But if you follow us on Twitter, you already know that. This is old information. So how about I give you a few more suggestions right here, exclusive on the podcast. You're not going to see this on Twitter. So here are my additional responses for video games that need to be turned into musicals. Yes, Stardew Valley. I think that would be a delightful stage musical. Very colorful. Gone Home. Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons. Dream Daddy, I think would be fantastic. But don't make it too camp be an ironic, you know, really go for the heart, go for the heart. And then my final suggestion is Grim Fandango, cult classic video game. I think it would be delightful to see that game's visual aesthetic on stage. I would also be interested in a South Korean Frank Wildhorn adaptation of Castlevania, but who, who, here, who here is surprised by that? If you've heard my Jekyll and Hyde opus episode of the Snow Club, you know how obsessed I am with Frank Wildhorn, and I just want, he's 
already written a Dracula musical. I just want to see him tackling other monsters, you know, like death. I want to see death with a big old sickle. I just want to see death sing while floating about trying to kill Simon Belmont. Ooh. But enough about video games being turned into musicals. We gotta talk about Gypsy, and we have a lot to say about Gypsy. Isn't that right, Benny? Benny is nodding his head vigorously. Let's get those show facts. Show me the show facts. Gypsy was a 1960 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on May 21st, 1959 at the Broadway Theater before transferring to the Imperial Theater in August 1960 and ran for 702 performances. The book was written by Arthur Lawrence based on Gypsy, a memoir by Gypsy Rose Lee. The music was by Julie Stein, and the lyrics were by Stephen Sondheim. Sondheim was initially approached to write both music and lyrics for Gypsy. However, Ethel Merman, who was slated to star in the show, was not comfortable working with a young and largely untested composer. Now keep in mind, that might sound like sacrilege, but Sondheim was still in his late 20s, and his only Broadway credit at the time involved writing lyrics for West Side Story, an obviously momentous achievement in hindsight, even if it wasn't impressive to Merman in the moment. Sondheim was itching to write a full score, but agreed to work with Stein at the behest of his mentor, Oscar Hammerstein. The director of the original production of Gypsy was Jerome Robbins. Robbins had previously directed the original Broadway production of West Side Story, so he and Sondheim had established a working relationship by this point. From what I remember having read Finishing the Hat, which serves as volume one of Stephen Sondheim's collected lyrics, Robbins was an outspoken prick who treated Sondheim fairly harshly, often using him as a punching bag when stress ran high. A vicious director? In the world of the theater? Oh, I am shocked. The musical director was... Milton Rosenstock. Hello, Milton. The choreographer was Jerome Robbins. Hello, Jerome again. Scenic design, Joe Milsner. Lighting design, Joe Milsner. Sound design, Jack Mitnick. Costume design, Raoul Penet-Dubois. And the original Broadway cast, get ready because I'm going to name everyone and it's a very long list. If you, if, if you have an itchy fast-forward finger, you might want to fast-forward through these names, but don't. These are names from the annals of theater history. <laughs> annals. So here is the cast of Gypsy. <coughs> Ethel Merman, of course, but then also Sandra Church, Jack Klugman, Catherine Albertson, Marvin Arnold, John Borden, Lane Bradbury, Bobby Burnell, Patsy Bruder, Jean Castle, Ricky Cole, Marilyn Cooper, Steve Curry, Faith Dane, Amilda DeMartin, Marilyn Dahnau, Don Emmons, Chotzi Foley, Irving Harmon, Billy Harris, Maria Karnilova, Gloria Christie, Jody Lane, Merle Latote, Loni Lou, Barbara London, Mort Marshall, Jacqueline Mayrow, Denise McLaglen, Karen Moore, Peg Murray, Theda Nelson, Michael Parks, Joan Petlack, Richard Porter, Marsha Rivers, Joe Silver, <laughs> Joe Silver, Willie Sumner, Carol, Joe Towers, Ian Tucker, Marie Wallace, Paul Wallace, David Winters, and George Zima. I hope you didn't fast forward through all of those. These are people from the annals of musical theater history. You should respect their contributions to said annals. <laughs> Anals. Let's talk about Tony Awards. Now, the original production of Gypsy won not a single Tony Award. No Tony Awards were won by the original production of Gypsy. I just need us to take a moment to process that. 
Gypsy is a legendary show. It has been for decades, but in its original form, it was not able to take home any Tony Awards. Truly crazy. So what was it nominated for, you may ask? Well, it was nominated, of course, for Best Musical. It was also nominated for Best Actress in a Musical, Ethel Merman. Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Jack Klugman. Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Sandra Church. Best Scenic Design, Joe Milsner. Best, uh, <laughs> uh, spooky. Best Costume Design, Raoul Penet Dubois. Best Direction of a Musical, Jerome Robbins. And Best Conductor and Musical director Milton Rosenstock. So in total, eight nominations, but again, zero awards. Ay, ay, ay. Let's talk about the plot, shall we? Gypsy opens in the 1920s, the decade that witnessed the once thriving vaudeville industry fade as movies steadily gained traction. Jobs are scarce, and your chances for success are growing slimmer by the month, but that isn't stopping our protagonist, Mama Rose. Rose is fiercely determined to turn her youngest daughter, June, into a star of the vaudeville stage. She's developed an entire act around the precocious performer, one in which her older daughter, Louise, often appears dressed as a boy. Note, the character of Louise is inspired by Gypsy Rose Lee, while June is inspired by Gypsy's sister, June Havoc. We know, Jonathan, we know. Well, some of our listeners may not, all right? Together, the family regularly pounds the pavement at kitty show auditions, trying to secure the few gigs that are available. Rose eventually expands the act to include actual boys, but it's obvious she's not much of an idea person. The aesthetic of the act changes somewhat as the years go by, with June's co-stars first appearing as newsboys on stage and then farm boys at a later point, but the songs never change. At one point we see Rose rifling through a mountain of sheet music, but all we ever see are variations on a tune called Let Me Entertain You and a cornball number about a cow. The troupe gains one last member in the first act, that being Herbie. As a former agent turned candy salesman. Herbie knows all about the vaudeville circuit and how it's dying a slow and painful death. However, he agrees to act as the group's manager after taking an immediate shine to Rose. The indomitable stage mother may be a lot to handle, but Herbie hopes that one day they'll be able to settle down and get married. Rose, for her part, is evasive in the face of commitment. After all, the group is bound for fame and glory, so what's the point in thinking otherwise? The beginning of the end arrives in the form of amazing news. Herbie has convinced vaudeville bigwig Mr. Goldstone to drop a contract that will allow them to tour the fairly prestigious Orpheum circuit. Rose is ecstatic when meeting Goldstone in person, to the point where she abandons Louise during the young girl's birthday party. Louise ends the night surrounded by her stuffed animals, wondering aloud just how old she is at this point. This is rooted in the fact, the history, that Gypsy, Rosalie, and June Havoc never knew their actual ages until adulthood, seeing as their mother consistently lied about it to book jobs and skirt child labor laws. The Orpheum tour goes well enough that Herbie is able to secure an audition for an even bigger hotshot known as Mr. Gratzinger. The audition goes fairly well, though Rose routinely steps on stage to supplement the act and draw a bit of attention to herself. Gratzinger informs the group that if June is willing to attend a performing arts school of his choosing, she may one day become a star. But Gratzinger is decidedly not interested in working with Rose or the boys. This sends Rose into a rage, and she refuses to break up the act without giving it a second thought. June is devastated. The tour continues, but spirits are undeniably on the downswing. One of the boys, Tulsa, reveals
reveals to Louise that he plans on leaving the act as soon as he can. He dreams of dancing his own steps with a lovely partner by his side, and Louise dares to wonder if that partner could be her. Instead, the group assembles one morning to discover Tulsa and June have eloped, never to be seen again. The boys who remain announce that they too are heading for greener pastures. Herbie is simultaneously disappointed and elated. With the act having dissolved, he and Rose can finally get married and raise Louise in a normal home. But Rose isn't interested in a normal home or a normal life. These are concepts people have been pushing down her throat from day one. This is especially true of her father, who routinely told Rose she'd never find success as anything other than a wife and mother. Rose cannot accept that, will not accept that, and so she makes an important decision. If she can't make June a star, she'll make one out of Louise. Clumsy, insecure, vaguely tone-deaf Louise. The act is updated slightly to include a group of young women, but the market has taken a turn for the worse. Herbie eventually manages to book a two-week run at a grungy venue, having no idea it's a burlesque house that books family-friendly acts so as to avoid police raids. Both Herbie and Rose are beyond distressed when this news is revealed, this truth, but Louise insists they should follow through on their commitment. After all, two weeks of pay is better than two weeks of unemployment. During their run at the burlesque house, Louise is introduced to Mazeppa, Electra, and Tessie, veteran dancers who school the young woman on what it means to perform burlesque. Behind Rose, they are absolutely my favorite characters. Rose agrees to marry Herbie once the two-week run comes to an end, but when the star attraction stripper is arrested for soliciting, Rose quickly succumbs to an awful temptation. Unable to resist the idea that her daughter can still become famous, she convinces the theater to let Louise go on in the absent stripper's place. This is the last straw for Herbie, who has come to view Louise as his own daughter. He leaves with a broken heart, and though Rose is shell-shocked, she rallies to ensure Louise is ready to perform. Let Me Entertain You is turned into a risque crooner for Louise's routine, and while her first performance starts off shaky, she ends her G-rated strip routine with a bit more confidence than she had before it began. An onstage montage reveals how Louise becomes not only a successful burlesque performer, but the most successful burlesque performer of her generation. She adopts the stage name Gypsy Rose Lee, and everyone loves old Gypsy Rose Lee. Everyone that is except Mama Rose, who cannot help but feel left out, left behind, and totally useless. It is while stewing in this isolation that she begins to reckon with the truth, that the dreams she had for her daughters are actually the ones she had for herself, and now that she is seemingly too old to achieve them, all she is left with are feelings of anger and isolation. Gypsy concludes with Louise and Rose confronting each other one last time, though this moment has been played out in a number of different ways depending on the production that you see. In some productions, the ending is gentle, with Louise silently taking Rose under her wing as they walk into the night together. Other interpretations are more dark, with an embittered Louise laughing in her mother's face. For my money, I like a more optimistic finale. I don't think there could ever be such a thing as a happy ending for these characters, but the idea of Rose being left alone kind of kills me. Rose is a broken person, and her decisions are insufferable and selfish, yes, but she's not a gorgon, and I don't believe she is beyond change or saving. That does it for the plot of the show, but I do want to throw a bit of real historical trivia at you. This is from Gypsy Rose Lee's Wikipedia page. Quote, 
Mother Rose continued to demand money from Gypsy Rose Lee and June Havoc. Gypsy rented a 10-room apartment on West End Avenue in Manhattan for Rose, who opened a boarding house for women there. On one occasion in the 1930s, Rose shot and killed a woman who was either a guest at the boarding house or a guest on the farm in Highland Mills in Orange County, New York, that Rose owned. A historical website for lesbians, all right, cites varying reports of which place was the scene of the crime. We're not really sure where Rose shot and killed this woman. According to Gypsy's son, Eric Lee Preminger, who is the author of several books, all right, the murder victim was Mother Rose's female lover, who had allegedly made a pass at Gypsy. The violent incident was investigated and reportedly explained away as a suicide. All right. Mother Rose was not prosecuted. Mother Rose's biographer strongly refutes the notion that this woman, Genevieve Augustine, was Rose's lover and doubts Rose's complicity in her death in light of Augustine's previous suicide attempts. How is this not a musical? Call it Genevieve. I need a musical about Genevieve and her relationship, the love triangle between her, Gypsy, and Mama Rose. Gotta get that musical. Write it. For the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 1959 original Broadway cast album. There are a total of eight major Gypsy recordings in circulation, and while I only listened to the 59 OBC album front to back, rest assured, we will be addressing the other seven recordings later on in this episode. Are you resting assured? Fantastic. Previously seen, I have previously seen the 1962 film adaptation starring Rosalind Russell with vocals by Lisa Kirk, so we have Rosalind Russell on screen, but in classic old movie musical tradition, she is dubbed over with Lisa Kirk's vocals, uh, presumably because Rosalind Russell's singing was not up to par. I do believe you can actually hear Russell singing certain in certain moments within that film adaptation, but those moments are few and far between. I have also seen the DVD. I rented the DVD, I should say. I also saw it. I held it in my hands. I, 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 I bore witness to it. I, I held it up and I said, I see this, I see it. I watched the DVD of the 2015 London Revival cast starring Imelda Stanton, whom we have, I believe, referenced before. And I always, I personally think of her as Dolores Umbridge from the Harry Potter franchise. Yes, I'm sure many people do. I have not seen the 1993 television adaptation of Gypsy starring Bette Midler. It is available in full via YouTube and 100% free. <laughs> Illegal. But this is a two-session week for us, right, Benny? And something had to give. We're doing the Snub Club right after this. We had a lot of ground to cover. My sincere apologies, Miss Midler. No offense. is a fucking overture. These aren't bite-sized samples we're getting. These are full steaming courses being presented to us on heavy platters. It doesn't simply tease. It whips your hunger up to the point where you become ravenous. I want it. I need it. Give it to me now, now, now. 
Listening to this overture is like unpacking a trunk that contains an entire circus. The bright ruby red and snow white stripes of an enormous tent. The roaring tigers, lions, and elephants, oh my. It's wrinkling Barnum and Bailey all at once. It makes me want to grab a solid gold trumpet and march in place. As we have already established, I cannot play a single instrument, but I will hold that solid gold trumpet high and with great pride. Moving beyond my fairly obvious circus comparisons, I'd like to point out the musical chunk of this overture that reminds me of a six o'clock fast action news type broadcast. Benny, play that chunk. playing over footage of hard-hitting journalists. It also makes me think of what I like to refer. I like to refer to this as the terror theme from Sondheim's Sweeney Todd. Can we get a bit of that, Benny? Now, at the risk of alienating our listeners, (laughs) can we play the two clips on top of each other? I wonder how that's going to sound. Let's hope that it doesn't sound too obnoxious. Oh boy. Okay, moving on. your musical comedy because nothing will be funnier to me than June shouting, I will do some kicks, only to be followed by the most perfunctory cymbal thwack in history. I will do some kicks. I will do some kicks. That's genius. That, that, that's very, very funny. Some people can get a thrill knitting sweat sitting still that's okay for some people who don't know they're alive some people can thrive and bloom living life in a living room that's perfect for some people of 105 but I that I gotta see yet all the places I gotta play all the things that I gotta be yet come on Papa what do you say the original recording of some people is much slower than I expected for whatever reason we have since fallen into this habit of ratcheting up the tempo to a degree where you can barely hear the lyrics anymore let's return to the slower steadier pace of days gone by shall we hello I am getting older and speed scares me please slow down Some people can get a thrill Netting sweaters and sitting still Just let's go back to the ethnomerman tempo The pace, shall we? 
I am fascinated by Rose's consistent use of eye language throughout this song. She's talking about all the sights that I gotta see and all the places I gotta play, I, I, I. Quite revealing, right, for someone who claims to live for her kids not through them. You should pay attention to your own words, Rose. Also, am I some people according to the tenants set down by Rose? Let's see. Knitting sweaters? Check. Uh, sure. Yeah, sure. I'd like to learn how to knit a sweater. Sitting still? Oh, definitely check. Yeah, I love sitting still. Living life in the living room? That's where the TV is. Movies. Watch movies all the time. Check, check, check. Playing bingo? Eh, hell yeah, I'll play bingo. Check. Paying rent? Eh, bleh, no, no. I don't like paying rent. Okay, so that's one X. A lot of checks, one X. Blueberry pie? Goodbye to blueberry pie? More like hello, blueberry pie. Not my pie of choice, but come on, check, check, check. Sitting on my butt again. Sitting still, sure. Sitting on my butt? Yes, I got a fairly juicy bubble butt. So yeah, check. Got the dream, but not the guts? Oh, okay, fuck you. You know what? Fuck you, Rose. Too personal. Funny, you're a stranger who's come here. Come from another town Funny I'm a stranger myself here Small world, isn't it? Funny You're a man who goes traveling Rather than settling down Funny Cause I'd love to go traveling, small world, isn't it? Small world is entirely dedicated to Rose's read on Herbie. We never confirm what his initial impressions are of Rose because they don't matter to Rose. She sees in Herbie what she wants to see and does her damnedest to make that vision a reality. If she believes Herbie is a born traveler who doesn't want to settle down, that's what he is, full stop. No further discussion necessary. And when Herbie attempts to correct these assumptions later on in the show, his objections bounce off of her like tennis balls against a brick wall. The Herbie she loves is the Herbie who best fits into her plan. You serve me, Herbie, not the other way around. You gotta admire Rose's blind confidence, even if it does wind up severing every tie in her life. Have an egg roll, Mr. Goldstone. Have a napkin, have a chopstick, have a chair. Have a spirit, Mr. Goldstone. Any spirit that I can spare, I'd be glad to share. Have a dish, have a fork, have a fish, have a pork. Put your feet up, feel at home. Have a smoke, have a coke. Would you like to hear a joke? I'll have June recite a poem. Have a lychee, Mr. Goldstone. Tell me any little thing that I can do. Ginger peachy, Mr. Goldstone. Have a cup. is needlessly self-critical when it comes to his work on Mr. Goldstone, I Love You. He views it as a one-joke song that, to be crude, 
blows its wad within the first line. And I suppose that's true. Technically, once we've established that Rose is feverishly trying to impress Goldstone, it becomes a matter of producing variations on that gag. Luckily, the song can't possibly overstay its welcome, as it clocks in at under two and a half minutes. If this was like a three and a half to four minute song, then we'd actually be in trouble. Then there's the matter of the ending, for which everyone enthusiastically cries, Goldstone! Sondheim views it as a poor substitute for the heartier conclusion he was never able to write. A band-aid, if you will. To that I say, 98% of composers wish their songs could end with a pop like Goldstone. So don't be so hard on yourself, Stevie. You wrote Have a Goldstone, Mr. Egg Roll. That in and of itself is a mind-boggling achievement. is the black sheep of the gypsy score, right? Am I right? Am I right? Am I right? Am I right? Is that funny? Am I right? That's funny. It's funny, right? <laughs> There's no way I'm the first to make that joke. Ancient Egyptians were making that joke while they were building the pyramids, and yet it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, little lamb is the black sheep. <laughs> Look, the point is that while I'm not over the moon for little lamb, I do appreciate the heartache it expresses. Louise has this ginger touch with her stuffed animal companions, and as a former child who was predisposed to fits of loneliness, I can relate to her cultivating a small, orderly corner in an otherwise indifferent world. Listen to me, what was I, fucking Oliver? I was fine. I was simply predisposed to fits of loneliness, and by that I mean I am and always have been prone to bouts of depression. This is my truth. I speak my truth. You'll never get away from me. You can climb the tallest tree. I'll be there somehow True You could say, hey, here's your hat But a little thing like that Couldn't stop me now I couldn't get away from you Even if you told me to So go on applies a trill to the word that while delivering the phrase a thing like that. It feels like a choice made just for her delight, and it's that kind of playful energy Rose needs during You'll Never Get Away From Me. And don't even get me started on Just try and you're gonna see How you're gonna not at all get away from me. What a wonderful combination of winning lyrics and glittering musicality. Not what I just did. What you heard before from the album, that. Zero Tony Awards as a reminder. Zero. Mama, please take our advice. 
we aren't the lunts. I'm not Fanny Bryce. Mama, we'll buy you the rice. If only this once, you wouldn't think twice. It could be so nice if Mama got married to stay. But Mama gets married and married and married and never gets carried away. Married is the one song in Gypsy where I find myself wanting to skip ahead, but then I get to the part where Louise and June sing, but mama gets married and married and married. It is how you say a good part that I enjoy. I like how this song proves that Louise and June do have a genuine affection for each other. The lazier, mean-spirited version of this show would have turned them into noxious rivals, but who needs that? Gypsy's book and score do an excellent job of alluding to character depths via economic scenes and songs. It assumes we'll enjoy filling out the rest of its portraits, and that's a healthy assumption, as it is indeed fun for me. Tulsa, tell me about your nightclub act. Okay. Well, you see... I pretend I'm home getting dressed for a date. Take a comb and I comb my hair. Take a flower, smell it, and put it in my lapel. And then I spot the audience. Once my clothes were shabby, tailors called me cabbies. So I took a vow, said this bum will be bo-barummel. Now I'm smooth and snappy, now my tailor's happy. I'm the cat's meow, my wardrobe is a wow. Got my tweed pressed, got my best vest, all I need now is the girl. Got my striped tie, got my hopes, I got the time and the place, and I got rhythm. Now all I need's a girl to go with them. If she'll just appear, we'll take this big town for a walk. I'll throw away my striped tie and my best pressed tweed. All I really need is the girl. The final stretch of All I Need is the Girl crushes me. We watch Louise get caught up in this exciting fantasia devised by Tulsa, and when he pulls her into his dance routine, she's delighted to find that she can actually keep up with him. Neither of them can believe it at first, but the rush of excitement sends them rocketing to rare and glorious heights. As a result, Louise begins to believe she can be someone's equal and step into life's foreground rather than continue to serve as June and Rose's support. Tulsa represents an exit, but before she can express her desires or even say goodbye, he's already vanished with June by his side. That's crushing! Everyone wants to know they're not merely needed but wanted, and it's hard to recover when promise results in ruin. Team Louise, hashtag Team Louise all the way. See you. 
has been sped up over the years. We established that earlier. The opening stretch of Everything's Coming Up Roses has been slowed down to an almost ridiculous crawl. There's slow and there's ponderous. You know, I had a dream. Just move it along, all right? Merman's version is the foundation to which other performers adhere or go against, and I think we'd be better off if everyone stuck with Merman's original tempos at the very least. I'm not saying you have to be a carbon copy of her, but stick to the tempos established. When Rose goes into her, everything's coming up, sunshine and lollipops, daffodils and Santa Claus, root beer and Ovaltine, stretch, when she goes into that stretch, it rings as the death rattle for an entire industry. She's killing it. She's strangling it with her bare hands. And it's not a weak death rattle. No, 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 no. Rose would never go out with a whimper, only a bang. Give up? Give in? Fuck you. Fuck off. Wherever we go. Whatever we do, we're gonna go through it together. Wherever we sleep, if prices are steep, we'll always sleep cheaper together. Whatever the boat I row, you row. rallying songs that I like so much. Who doesn't love a friendship rallying song? Jerks with no friends, that's who. I like Together Wherever We Go a heck of a lot, especially when the performers hit Together Wherever We Go. This score is all about emphasis, striking certain syllables with invisible rubber mallets for the sake of clarity and in the name of having a ball. We cannot ignore the ironic messaging from Rose during this number, however. At one point, she emphasizes how their family enterprise should include, quote, no fits, no fights, no feuds, and no egos. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then she goes on to say that it doesn't matter if they, quote, win, place, or show, please, as if Rose isn't eyeing that ever-elusive brass ring 24 hours a day. Me thinks the lady doth protest too much. She can't, mm, she can't, mm, she can't, mm, mm, mm.
Zeppa Electra and Tessie, as played by Faith Dane, Chotsi Foley, and Maria Karnilova, are undeniable scene stealers. They are straight up scene thieves. Arthur Laurent's writing for this trio is especially sharp and funny, and you gotta get a gimmick as a celebration of everything they have to offer. Don't get me wrong, Act 2 of Gypsy is by no means a drag before they show up, but they are a breath of fresh air nonetheless. Do I wish they had their own musical spinoff? Yes. Am I also glad they don't have their own musical spinoff? Yes. We must not allow the zesty spice to overwhelm the overall recipe. Feel free to tag yourself, uh, but I see myself as an Electra. Some people tag themselves in Sex in the City. I tag myself within the trio of strippers. Give me them bulbs! I want to be Electra! On a related note, I recently decided if I ever adopt a drag persona, her name will be Cornflake, and her motto will be, I'm going to kill you. We'll do a deep dive into Rose's turn in just a second, this I promise you, but first a few of my famous general observations. My big directorial note when it comes to Rose is you cannot give away the core of her character at the top of the show. A lot of actors will want to jump to the fury and flame of Rose's turn as soon as they can, because anger is a fun and cathartic emotion to play, but Rose cannot be a screaming harpy seconds after the curtain goes up. Starting at an 11, big mistake, pretty woman huge. Rose must be a functioning, semi-charming human being, or else it will make zero sense that anyone would want to be around her, much less work for or help her. She's a confident steamroller moving in one direction, not a blood-soaked machete hacking her way through the underbrush. As written, the show peels back Rose's layers to expose the white-hot, festering coal at her center, and it is only when we reach Rose's turn that we can be allowed to view what actually drives her. With all of that said, I want to rank all eight recorded versions of Rose's turn, and so that is exactly what we are going to do today. This ranking takes a few elements into consideration. One, the quality of the vocal performance. Two, how effectively that performance conveys the actor's characterization of Rose. And three, how the orchestral arrangement backs their interpretation. For your reference, here are the recordings and their star performers in chronological order. Did I mention we're calling this segment The War of the the Roses. I pray to God some show queen hasn't already hit upon this idea. But yes, here's the chronological list. 1959 original Broadway cast, Ethel Merman. 1962 motion picture soundtrack, Lisa Kirk. 1973 original London cast, Angela Lansbury. 1989 Broadway revival cast, Tyne Daly. 1993 television cast, Bette Midler. 2003 Broadway revival cast, Bernadette Peters. 2008 Broadway revival cast, Patti Lapone. And finally, 2015 London Revival cast Milda Stanton. Now that we know what we're working with, let's start with number eight and work our way up, shall we? Let's go with number eight, Betty. Hello, everybody. My name's Rose. What's yours? How do you like them egg rolls, Mr. Goldstone? Hold your hats and hallelujah, mama's gonna Mama! 
I had an incredibly negative reaction to Patti Lapone's rendition of Rose's Turn, so negative in fact that I sat down with it again to ensure my observations were not hyperbolic. It's easy to skew negative, what can I say? Unfortunately, this really is the worst version of the song on record. Lupone seems highly aware of its status within the canon. The fact that over the course of five decades, countless performers had, in good faith, tried to make it their own, but rather than respect this history and consider how she could fit into it, Lapone opted for the more juvenile fuck-it approach. Every beat and phrase is tweaked simply for the sake of change, or buried underneath a mountain of noise. It's obnoxious, tiresome, and embarrassing. Far be it from me to revoke someone's Broadway diva status, but at a certain point, even stars like Lapone have to be reined in, if only to achieve basic coherence. This is the only category capital B bad performance on this list, in my opinion. Everything above it is either a debatably mixed bag or outright great. Now, with that said, Benny, let's hit him with number seven. Either got it or you ain't. And boys, I got it. You like it? Well, I got it. Some people got it. This people's got it, and this people's spreading it around. Either have it, or you've had it. Uh, that's right, the 1962 motion picture soundtrack, Lisa Kirk. I should point out that your monthly Patreon donations allowed me to purchase not only the Gypsy Film soundtrack, but the 2015 Emilda Stanton recording, so thank you again for your amazing generosity. Now, regarding Lisa Kirk's performance, I think it's important to emphasize how Rose's turn is, of course, split into two distinct halves. The first involves Rose putting on this garish and ironic vamp routine, while the second sees her tap into a vast reserve of terrible anger. Kirk delivers the anger fairly well. It's grimly straightforward, predictable, but assured, almost like she's been singing the song for years and can get by on autopilot, and she basically gets away with it. As for the vamping, eh, that's too goofy, too arch. The idea that Rose would bring a cheeky vaudeville spirit to burlesque makes sense, but after a while I couldn't help but imagine Kirk's voice coming out of an animated Mel Blanc cat. Her choices may be a smidge distracting, but they're not nearly as bad as those of Lapone from the 2008 cast, and that is why Kirk will be sitting comfortably in our number seven slot. But what about number six? Benny, hit him with number six. I made you, and you want to know why? You want to know what I did it for? Because I was born too soon, and I started too late, that's why. But what I have in me, I could have been better than any of you. What I got in me, what I've been holding down inside of me, oh, if I ever let it out, there wouldn't be signs big enough. There wouldn't be lights bright enough. Here she is, boys. Here she is, world.
number six, 2003 Broadway revival cast Bernadette Peters. Can we talk about how when the men on this track shout, yeah, they sound like horny grizzly bears from the pits of hell? You like it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ugh, it's disturbing. In case you couldn't tell, I don't have a lot to say when it comes to Bernadette's performance. Her rose has a lockjaw lemon tart twist sourpuss flavor. I waffle back and forth on it's pretty lightweight and essentially dissolves on contact with the ear, but I'd rather listen to a pouty middle-aged olive oil Cupid doll rose than those who come before her on this list. Benny, hit him with number five, baby. I had a dream I dreamed it for you June It wasn't for me Herbie And if it wasn't for me Then where would you be Miss Gypsy Rosalie Will someone tell me When is it my turn Don't I get a dream for myself Starting now is gone my turn gangway world get off of my runway starting now i bet a thousand this time boys i'm taking the bows and everything's coming up rose everything's coming up roses everything's coming up roses this time for me Aha, 2015 London Revival cast, Emilda Stanton coming in at number five. Yeah, pro. Emilda Stanton sounds like a salty sea captain swaggering down the gangplank with a nondescript bottle of booze in her hand. That's always fun. Pro, I'm a fan of her plant boys because it's like she knows every member of the orchestra by name and reputation. Pro, she's providing one of the more memorable deliveries of the song's final note, turning it into a stream of white-hot star lava that could rip through titanium. Con, the mama's talking loud chunk is hijacked so it can serve as a nasty impression of June? Which is a choice. It's less unnerving than it is annoying. The baby voice, uh, how it makes me cringe, Amilda. Con, each repeating instant of, for me, seems like it's coming from a different character, which leads me to think Stanton got a bit lost in the weeds and needed more guidance, maybe a bit too much in her head on that front. Having seen her full performance via the DVD release, I can confidently say hers is the most bonkers interpretation of Rose as a whole, a gibbering and openly abusive maniac who reads as having escaped from a sanitarium. It categorically does not work, but that doesn't take away from the awesome local Motive power driven driving, I should say, her big finale. Uh, Benny, can you, uh, can you do me a favor? Can you hit him with number four then? Ready or not, here comes Mama. Mama's talking loud, Mama's doing fine, Mama's getting hot, Mama's going strong, Mama's moving on, Mama's all alone, Mama doesn't care, Mama's letting loose, Mama's got the stuff, Mama's letting go.
All right, thank you very much, 1993 television cast. Bette Midler, yes? I initially took Bette Midler's version for granted, viewing it as little more than a showcase for her famous chops. What a dumb assessment on my part. Midler is cooking with gas here, serving up a glint of her own bathhouse rock star energy, while otherwise adhering to the framework Ethel Merman constructed in 59. Now that's a smart decision. People will inevitably compare Midler to Merman, right? Because they're kindred spirits cut from the same cloth, so why not face those expectations head on? If anyone can do it and come out glowing, it's Midler. And spoiler alert, that's exactly what she does. I especially like how she gives the mom must talk in loud section a light-headed quality, as if Rose is losing her breath while tramping up a steep incline. Midler also cuts out the stammering you usually hear when Rose exclaims, Mama, Mama. You know, you, for the most part, you get the mama, 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 no, 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 that's just going mama, mama. By doing so, by cutting out the stammering, you realize it's not actually that essential. Benny, give us number three. With what I've been holding down inside of me, if I ever let it out, there wouldn't be signs big enough. There wouldn't be lights bright enough. Here she is, boys. Here she is, world. Here's Rose. Ah, 1973, original London cast, Angela Lansbury. All right, we're in the upper echelon. There's no going back now. We're in the end game, Tony. Lansbury is all crackle and all bite here. She's a shot of whiskey spiked with shards of glass. She's coming for you with a sword and a whip and precisely aimed flaming arrows. She's a painter. Uh, no, not a painter, a panther, I wrote down. Painter, what the fuck? She's a panther on the hunt. The Wicked Witch of the West. <laughs> but if I may dispense with the glossy comparisons already. This is about as gonzo as you'll ever want to go with this character, I think. Go any further and you're drifting into Lapone territory, but ride the wave as Lansbury does and you'll give an audience the thrill of their life. Lansbury has these, these big expressive eyes she often utilizes to goggle at the world around her, and when I listen to this track, I picture the sort of piercing gaze she must have paired with her vocals. If I saw this rose coming for me, I would run away while squealing with delight. Benny, number two, please. And everything's coming up rose. Everything's coming up roses. Everything's coming up roses. This time for me. For me. For me. For me. For me. For me. 
Number two, 1959 original Broadway cast album, Ethel Merman. As has been implied before, Ethel Merman is the Urtext, the Rosetta Stone. If you are cast in the role of Mama Rose and think you can pull it off without examining her performance, you're an absolute fool and I have no respect for you. Why do you think companies mount productions of Gypsy 60 years after it premiered? Why do you think audiences keep flocking to it? It's because Merman made Rose and the show surrounding her an event, and she did it by giving everything she had. If you can't say the same for yourself, there's no point in taking on the part. And I've said. Now you may be wondering, Jonathan, how can you pedantically school us on the virtues of Ethel Merman when you didn't even hand her the number one slot? Well, my musical minions, it's because this list comes down to personal preference, and for me, there's one recorded version of Rose's turn that beats out all the rest. Yes, even the one set down by the legendary Ethel Merman herself. What could it be? If you've been paying attention, you already know, but let's find out together. Benny, give us nine Number one! Everything's coming up Everything's coming up Everything's coming up This time for me <laughs> For me For me For me For me For me It's Everything's Coming Up Kurt from Glee Season 1, Episode 18, which is known as Laryngitis. Now, you may think I'm crazy, but hear me out. When applied to the turmoil of a 15-year-old white homosexual boy, Rose's turn achieves a devastating relevancy that Stein and Sondheim only could have dreamed about in 1959. I'm serious. I'm not. Or am I? I'm not. Benny, can we please get my real selection for the number one slot? Why did I do it? What did it get me? Scrapbooks full of me in the background. Give them love and what does it get you? What does it get you? One quick look as each of them leaves you. All your life and what does it get you? Thanks a lot and out with the garbage. They take bows and you're batting zero. I had a dream. I dreamed it for you, too. It wasn't for me, for me. And if it wasn't for me, then where would you be, Miss Gypsy Rosalie? Oh, thanks a lot, Benny. It's 1989 Broadway revival cast, Tyne Daly. Tyne Daly for the win, baby. Kurt, coiled, vibrating with barely restrained rage. Daly is the master of control, and that's what makes her rose so awe-inspiring and frightening to me. I can't get over how she clips June and Herbie's names. It wasn't for me, June. It wasn't for me, Herbie. The more Daly leans toward the minimal, the more ominous and threatening the entire piece becomes, which is a brilliant choice on her part. This is also the best orchestral arrangement of Rose's turn by a mile. On the original Broadway cast album, there's an ambient hum that comes at you from the left when you're using earbuds. Benny, can we actually get that? Scrapbooks full of me in the background. Give them love and what does it get you? What does it get you? One quick look as each of them leaves you. 
Now, for the 89 arrangement, uh, they took that peripheral hum and placed it front and center, and by doing so, Rose's turn becomes a bone-chilling horror theme I never knew I wanted. Let's play that again. We gotta play it again. What did it get me? Scrapbooks full of me in the background. Give them love, and what does it get you? What does it get you? One quick look as each of them leaves you. I'm sure there are those who will be taken aback by this selection, but I enjoy going back to it again and again and again. That does it for our deconstruction of the Gypsy score, so let's get a word from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. Oh, hello, it's me, Salad Fingers. That's right, hello. Happy Halloween from Salad Fingers. If you if you don't remember me, I was a somewhat popular Flash animation character in the first decade of the 2000s. Perhaps you remember my catchphrase, Rusty Spoon. Oh, I love to gracefully brush my long salad fingers against a deliciously rusty spoon. But you know what I love even more? A cup of five, six, seven, eight coffee. I put a little bit of cream in the coffee and then I stir the cream and the coffee together with a rusty spoon. Ah, yes, not since the early to mid-2000s have I ever been so pleased than when I am with my cup of five, six, seven, eight coffee. Are you going to have a spooky Halloween this year? I hope so. Ah, perhaps I'll have a reboot revival online just in time for Halloween 2019. But even if my dream doesn't come true, I'll have my mug and my five, six, seven, eight coffee and my rusty spoon. Oh, now, if you'll excuse me, I, I hate to cut this short, but I have to go have a meeting with Homestar Runner and the cast of Badger, 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 Mushroom, Mushroom, Snake. It's a snake. It's a snake. Happy Halloween from your friend, Salad Fingers. thoughts on Gypsy. Oh, Gypsy. <laughs> I realized I didn't write down any major final thoughts on Gypsy. How, how do you not know what I feel about Gypsy by this point anyway? Come on, you know what I feel. I love Gypsy. It's great. I actually learned to love Gypsy more this week, this past week, than, than I ever could have realized. I was underappreciating it, if anything. But I really, I sat down with that original Broadway cast album, not once, but twice. And it was a lovely experience both times. Now, well, let's talk about let's talk about the Tony Awards again, shall we? Now, in 1960, The Sound of Music and Fiorello both took home a Tony Award for Best Musical because, as we know, they tied the one instance where two shows tied. Yes, and the other nominees that year were Once Upon a Mattress and Take Me Along. I mean, we really did drop the ball when it comes to Gypsy, didn't we? We we let that show walk away without a single Tony Award to its name. How could we have let that happen? Almost every song from its score is still present within the zeitgeist. Is anyone in 2019 humming tunes from Fiorello on their way to the office? No, I don't believe they are. And as a culture, do we experience anything stronger? Let's be real. Let's be very 
partially honest with ourselves. Do we as a culture experience anything stronger than a soft affection when it comes to the sound of music? No, we do not. I think if we were told that it was no longer part of the canon, there wouldn't be a ton of tears being shed for the sound of music. So let's take those medallions away from those undeserving shows, The Sound of Music, Fiorella, ah, oh, fuck them. Melt those awards down so they can be forged into one plate-sized ingot, a giant disc, and hand that disc to Gypsy so that history may be set right. Now, when it comes to ranking the show, I'm gonna give Gypsy our number two spot. That's right. Right between a chorus line at number one and Caroline or Change at number three, as always. Go to our Twitter profile, Musical Man Pod. Click on the pin tweet. Go to the Google Sheet. Go to the second tab on the Google Sheet, and you will see a complete rundown on our current ranking. That's right. I have three pieces of show-related ephemera that we're gonna move through right now, right quick. First, we're going to get a clip from a 1977 Gene Shalit interview with Mary Martin and Ethel Merman. Oddly enough, I don't know if this has been edited by the YouTube user, but Mary Martin literally never talks throughout this interview. Uh, she does for a moment, but Ethel seems to really have a tight grip on the reins of this interview, and I want to I hear Ethel's thoughts on the current state of Broadway. If you recall, we, we got Cheetah Rivera's thoughts on Broadway when we were discussing Merlin, and now we're going to get Ethel's thoughts on the state of Broadway in 1977. Take it away, Ethel. How has the Broadway theater changed, in your view, since what I consider the glory days of the 30s, the 40s, and 50s of the Broadway musical theater? I don't enjoy really going to the theater and coming out and not being able to at least hum something that I've heard on the stage. Uh, I don't know. I think the... the um, the the the, the storylines are, are nothing. I mean, I think the, that's a, I'm far from being a prude, believe me. But I don't go to the theater to see nakedness and fall at and hear fall at words and in, in songs or in dialogue or whatever it is. People don't take an interest in their appearance going oh. to the theater. They come in blue jeans cut up to here. You know, I mean, they look like they're ready for a, the girls a strip act or something, and a little bra here or something. And these are the people that sit down in the second and third and fourth row in the orchestra. You look in the orchestra pit, the musicians have got white shirts on up to here. They know not even a, a summer jacket on. It's all disappeared. It's not the theater. I don't know that Mary and I knew. It's not the theater that I knew. Fantastic. And now we're going to get a 1970s uh, commercial. Of course, I love a commercial uh, that's related to the show that we're talking about. This is Ethel Merman doing an ad for Vell Dish Detergent. Okay, let's let's play that. Hey. keeps hands soft as roses. Look, dunk a fresh rose, an icky pan, in rose lotion bell with rose water and glycerin. Like gangbusters, bell cuts grease. See? And the rose comes up soft. Hands, too. Add a touch. He can tell. Hands come up soft as roses cause a bell. Those hands he holds are soft as they can be. Merm, try Bell. 
And finally, that, that commercial is fucking ridiculous, by the way. You have to find it on YouTube. Finally, we have 1979's Everything is Coming Up Roses from the Ethel Merman Disco Album, which is a real album that exists. Let's hear a bit of the disco version of Everything's Coming Up Roses. Now, normally at this point in the show, we would take a ride on the musical carousel to determine what show we discuss next week. But another loyal listener has posted a Miss Saigon, more like Blast Saigon review via Apple Podcasts, and so they have earned the right to decide next week's subject. That show was a 1998 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical and ran for 834 performances on Broadway. It's ragtime, baby. Yeah, ragtime's coming at us next week. Thank you again to the following listeners for their Miss Saigon, more like Blast Saigon reviews, and their show selections. Jada chose Ain't Misbehavin', uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts user uh, Melise821 chose Great Gardens, Matt chose Once, Chris JC chose Tootsie, Chad chose this week's subject, Gypsy, and Jenna chose next week's subject, Ragtime. I am officially closing the door on Miss Saigon, more like Blast Saigon reviews for the record. We had a fantastic run as we just saw, but for now the right to select what musical we discuss on the podcast has returned to being an exclusive right held by our Patreon donors. Patreon, you say? Tell me more. I'm a new listener. I shall do that now. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. If you donate one dollar a month, you will receive a verbal shout out each and every week. Let's do that now, thank you so much again, Jordan, Ashley, Chris JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. If you donate a dollar a month, you also get bonus episodes dedicated to the 73rd Annual Tony Awards and the first trailer for Cats. And coming up, coverage, a special episode covering ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, which I believe is set to air November 5th. If you donate $3 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your your choosing, and coming November 2019, the High School Musical Podcast, where I will be covering, of course, anything and everything relating to the High School Musical franchise. If you donate $5 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I shall discuss on the podcast. That's that very privilege that I was talking about a moment ago. You also get season one of All I Ask of You, the advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, and a special series dedicated to my experience with the Broadway in Chicago season here in Chicago. Go. And if you donate $10 a month, not only do you get everything I've already mentioned, you get this, you get this, listen, listen, The Snob Club, yes, a series dedicated to musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical, dropping today along with this episode in the main feed is our uh, our ninth episode of The Snub Club. It's dedicated to Jason Robert Brown's The Bridges of Madison County, which, spoiler alert, is a lovely show. Past subjects of The Snub Club include Amelie, Merrily We Roll Along,
Dog, Flahuli, American Psycho, Be More Chill, Jekyll and Hyde, Allegiance, and Superman. Donations, your Patreon donations, go toward the purchase of cast recordings. I, I bought a couple of recordings just this week for Gypsy. Uh, it also helps me to rent movies online, movie adaptations of the musicals we might be talking about. And you're also helping to uh, help me offset the cost of being hosted through Podbean. If we ever get to $100 or more in total monthly donations, I will produce M3, the movie musical man, a monthly series for which I will watch trilogies of musicals that are tied by a common theme. Now you might be wondering, how, uh, how can I listen to the show? What are my options when it comes to listening to the show? Well, you can listen through Apple Podcasts, and you can also write a five-star review there. We have 23 five-star reviews, and when we get to 30, written five-star reviews. Now remember, this isn't just star ratings. You have to write out a review for this to count. We're at 23. If we ever get to 30, I will do a special episode dedicated to the Disney Descendants trilogy. Yes, that's right. You can also stream the show at musicalmanpod.podbean.com and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Do you have some thoughts on Gypsy? Have you been in Gypsy? Have you seen Gypsy? Let me know. Thanks as always to Benny in the booth, Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and Zach Little for our fabulous music. And that, oh, ah, and you know what that sound means? You hear that? You hear that sound? Oh, yes. Just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. and started too late. That's why. What I got me... I, I could have been better than any of you. What I got me... What I've been holding down inside of me, if I ever let it go, there wouldn't have been signs big enough. There wouldn't have been lights bright enough. Here she is, boys. Here she is, world. Here's...